0: All right, John chapter 19, John chapter 19. I'm not bringing necessarily a patriotic message today. I know that this is a patriotic weekend, and we are looking forward maybe to going out and watching some fireworks. Maybe that's a tradition of yours on July 4th or some concert. But I do want to stay in our series here in the book of John, and I know this is a a fairly somber Time as we have been working our way through these chapters on the trial and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Uh, But I want to take a little bit different angle or approach in this morning's message, and I want us to see perspectives on the cross or perspectives of the cross. I want us to look at some individuals or groups as we work our way through this passage and see the different perspectives of the different groups and uh, hopefully as we do that we will see uh, what the Lord has for us and wants for us to know from his word. We come to John 19 and verse 17 and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha where they crucified him and two other with him on either side one and Jesus In the midst. So we come to this place. Jesus has been through the trial. He's been scourged. We have spent a lot of time talking about Pilate and the great consternation and turmoil that he was in, and trying to wash the guilt of the murder of Jesus from his hands, the blood of Jesus from his hands. Obviously a a futile attempt. He tried to pass the blame over to the Sanhedrin, to the religious leaders to the Jews, but ultimately it was Pilate's decision to execute Jesus. But we also see the Jews involved with Caiaphas, with the Sanhedrin, with the religious leaders, with Annas. We see the Romans involved, the Gentiles. We see these different individuals from Herod Antipas to Pilate to Caiaphas and Annas but it reminds us again, whether it be Jew or whether it be Gentile, it's our sin that put Jesus on the cross. It is our sin that nailed him there. And we see now that Pilate has given the orders, and Jesus has been scourged, and that robe has been placed on him on him, and that th- crown of thorns placed on his head, and then he is taken, delivered in verse 16. Him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. It was customary for a person being crucified to have to carry their own cross. Yet another way in which the Romans would shame the individual. As if crucifixion weren't bad enough, Jesus having been scourged, which some criminals before crucifixion, if they were scourged, Many of them would not even survive the scourging. But, of course, the strength of our Lord Jesus as the God-man. Uh, Jesus Christ was not some wimpy, hippie-looking, emaciated individual, as some paintings, as some drawings of Jesus tried to make him appear to be. Jesus was a man's man. He was a strong Jewish man. He was the God-man. He had obviously endured the scourging. He had endured the shame of the trial. And now he was made to bear his own cross. But notice as we read here that they sent him, they went forth, excuse me, in verse 17, into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Golgotha in the Hebrew... Literally in the Jewish Aramaic, the word Golgotha means place of a skull because of the hillside there that we know of as Calvary, it had the appearance of a skull. I've not been to Israel, not been to the Holy Land, but my understanding from those who have been there, from the accounts that I've read from some people who have been there, that it does. Even to this day, it has the appearance of a skull. And that is the place outside Jerusalem where Jesus would carry his cross. To be crucified. But we know in Matthew 27 that as Jesus was carrying his cross, there was a man who was called forth from the crowd to finish carrying the cross to the place where they would literally put Christ on the cross, would nail him there. And we know that man as Simon of Cyrene. So as we look at different perspectives of the cross, we see, first of all, the perspective of this man, Simon. I know he is not mentioned specifically here. We reference Matthew 27 and verse 42, but we know that Simon of Cyrene was called forth from the crowd. Simon was probably a Jew. There was a Jewish population in the town, the city of Cyrene. Cyrene would be in what we know of as modern-day Libya on the north coast of Africa, the south coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but the north coast of Africa there in what we know as the modern country of Libya. Cyrene, again, had a Jewish population. Simon was probably in Jerusalem for the Passover, being a Jew, and participating in the Passover feast. And so he was there, no doubt, had heard what was going on and had come to watch as Jesus was carrying his cross and we know that he was crumbling under the weight of the load of that cross. Again, all that Christ had endured, there were many who would never even have survived what he had endured already up to this point. Now, He was struggling to carry the cross. Simon is called to help bear the cross the rest of the way to the point where they would nail Jesus to that cross. We don't know a lot about Simon. Again, we've identified him as probably a Jew who was there to observe the Passover, but he is identified as the father of Alexander and Rufus in Mark 15 and verse 21. Now, Rufus is mentioned in Romans 16 in verse 13. And it's interesting, without getting too speculative, I think based on and what commentators and Bible scholars have ascertained about Simon, a man who was quite likely a religious person going to the Passover to observe as a Jew practicing the, the, the Judean customs, following the Mosaic law, but likely an unsaved religious man, observing the Passover, now is carrying Jesus' cross, father of Alexander and Rufus, who is mentioned in Romans 16 and verse 13, Rufus apparently being a part of the Roman church. Many scholars, commentators, have ascertained that Simon was probably saved as a result of this interaction with Jesus and being there at the crucifixion. And then his at least his son Rufus became involved in the church at Rome. So we see that perspective of a man named Simon who came to Jerusalem as a religious man came to observe the Passover, came to do good things to probably feel like he was gaining favor with God and making his progress in his attempt to gain heaven and to gain a standing with God. And Simon is called out to bear the cross of Jesus, which would have been a Shameful thing, the criminal carrying his own cross, again, was another way that the Romans would shame the criminal. Simon is bearing now the cross, the cross of shame, and no doubt Simon, again, without getting too speculative here, Simon must have felt the shame of his own sin. He knew that Christ was carrying the cross As an innocent man, no doubt he had probably known enough about Jesus by this point that he knew that this was an innocent man condemned to death. And Simon, now carrying the cross, realized that he had the shame of his own sin that he was carrying. Simon gets saved. His son Rufus gets saved and becomes involved in the church at Rome and is recognized by the Apostle Paul in Romans 16 in verse 13. So we see the perspective of an individual, a religious man named Simon. And how many religious people do we know around the world, right here in the Greater Lafayette area, people that we come into contact with, very religious people, good people, moral people, who want to gain a right standing with God but are going about it all the wrong way. And they must face the shame of their sin. Recognize their sin before a holy God and turn from their sin and turn to Christ in saving faith. The way apparently Simon did and at least his son Rufus did as well. We can't help but make note of the fact that as Jesus carried his cross, an Old Testament type of Christ, Isaac carried the wood to his sacrifice in Genesis 22. We also know from Hebrews 13 and from the Levitical record and the Mosaic law that the sin offering had to be taken outside the camp. So we see fulfillment in the type of Christ in Isaac and then also in the sin offering in Jesus taking his cross to be crucified outside the camp, outside Jerusalem. So we see Simon of Cyrene, but we also see another perspective of the cross. And again, we come back to Verse number 18, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. We see the perspective of the two thieves. We would have to turn over to Luke 23, so let's do that in order to understand the details. We haven't done this with every passage, but we will for more detail on this perspective of the two thieves. Luke 23 in verse 39, Luke 23, in verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me. When thou comest into thy kingdom, and Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So we see also the perspective of these two thieves, one on either side of Jesus. At the beginning, apparently, they both were mocking Jesus. When they were first hung there on the cross next to Jesus, it appears from the other gospel accounts that they were mocking him. At the beginning, but by Luke 23 and verse 39, there was one who had begun to change his attitude toward Jesus. God was working on this man's heart, seeing the way Jesus was dying, knowing, as we just read, enough about Jesus, knowing he was an innocent man. The one thief spoke up. As the other was mocking, in verse 39 of Luke 23, the other answered, rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. He saw his guiltiness, their guiltiness. He made it personal. He recognized, he even refers to the fear of God, verse 40. He makes mention of condemnation. And at that point, we see this thief, as he realizes his just condemnation, Christ's unjust condemnation, Christ's innocence, he realized that he was a sinner justly dying for his sin while Christ was dying unjustly for his sin. And that thief, at that point, I know it wasn't a great sinner's prayer. I know it doesn't go on the back of some of our tracks, and nothing wrong with having a sinner's prayer on the back of a track. That's not my point. But we don't often think of this maybe in the terms of a sinner's prayer, but all he says in verse 42, notice he says, Jesus, Lord, he recognizes Christ as the Messiah. He recognizes Him as the Son of God. He recognizes His own sinfulness. He knows that He can't get there on His own. And in a sense, a deathbed confession. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He recognizes Christ as King. King of kings and Lord of lords. Something that Pilate and Caiaphas and Annas and Herod had refused to recognize. The thief on the cross comes to the grips of the reality of his sin and he calls out for Christ to save him. Remember me. Remember me. When thou comest into thy kingdom. And then we read there in verse 43, as Jesus states, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Just in that simple statement, we see the theology of heaven. We see the theology of A sinner saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. We understand that baptism is the first step of obedience after a person gets saved. But isn't it very clear from this verse that baptism is not a requirement for salvation? It is a step of obedience after one gets saved. Obviously, there was no opportunity for the thief on the cross to be baptized. Obviously, there was a mercy and a grace of God that was extended there, but it's very clear that he was saved by faith alone in Christ alone. No works, no baptism, no nothing else. Solely by faith alone in Christ as he recognized his sin, as he called out for the Savior to remember him as he went into his kingdom. We see even the theology of Absent from the body, present with the Lord. As Paul would later write in Corinthians. We know that when a saved person dies, they merely enter into the very presence of God. Absent from the body, absent from this sin-cursed body, and present with the Lord. Waiting the resurrection day when the soul and the body will be reunited and that body will be glorified. So we see the perspective of the two thieves. We've seen, we have seen the perspective of Simon of Cyrene. But then we notice here, as we continue going back to John 19, and we come to this sign in verse 19. And I'd like to maybe refer to it as the perspective of the onlookers, or the perspective of the world, and the invitation once again to the entire world for whosoever will. Because in verse 19, Pilate wrote, had it written on to the title on the sign above Jesus' head and put it on the cross, verse 19, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city and was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Hebrew, again, is probably Jewish Aramaic. Nevertheless, in the Hebrew language, Greek and then also Latin, which would have been common among the Romans So we see even in the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. We see, in a sense, the perspective of the onlookers, the perspective of the world. There is even in that sign, Christ dying for the sins of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We see even in that sign, we we see the appeal to the world to repent, to turn from one's sin, to see Christ as one's Lord and Savior, to come to Him in saving faith. And I can't help but think, but the three languages seem to reflect or represent that fact that God doesn't want any to perish, who would have all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. We've seen Simon, we've seen the two thieves, we've seen the world or the onlookers, but then we also see the soldiers, the soldiers Let's go down and we read in verse 22. Pilate answered what I have written. I have written, of course, the religious leaders, the chief priests, verse 21. They want to argue with Pilate about this sign. Pilate says, I'm not going to argue with you anymore. I've argued with you all night, in a sense, all morning. What I've written, I've written. Verse 23, then the soldiers. When they had crucified, Jesus took his garments and made four parts to every soldier a part and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. So the soldiers, it was customary for the soldiers, the executioners, apparently, because it's Reference there that they made four parts, that there were the four soldiers immediately involved in the execution, probably there and nailing the the nails into Jesus' hands and his feet. And we see that they begin to gamble for Christ's clothes. It was customary for the executioners to do this. They would claim the garments of the condemned. Now, I don't know exactly exactly how wealthy or what they would get, but maybe there would be times where somebody of some wealth or prominence would be executed and they might gain something that could increase their wealth, that they could sell or that they, they could uh, maybe keep as a memento or, or something of the occasion. I'm not sure exactly what all their motives were, but it was customary for the soldiers who were involved in the execution to keep the garments of those who were condemned, So Christ's garments are divided into four parts. Now, understanding the clothing of that day, we have to understand that there would have been a turban, there would have been a pair of sandals, there would have been an undergarment, which was the seamless robe, or what is sometimes referred to as the tunic. And then there's some debate as to whether there would have been uh, an outer garment and then also a girdle. Not so sure about uh, the girdle, or every individual piece. Some commentators say four, some say five. But the customary clothing, we know that there had been that robe that had been placed on his, on his back, but then that was taken off, of course, and that would have torn even more from the blood and the coagulation of the blood. But assuming the four parts, as we read there, there would have been this turban, there would have been an outer garment, there would have been a pair of sandals, there would have been an undergarment, the tunic, which was the seamless robe, and then possibly a fourth part, maybe a girdle or another garment. Again, they would have worn robes in that day. wouldn't have been shorts and a t-shirt or jeans and a t-shirt or a coat and tie. That was the customary robe and the customary types of garments that were worn. So they begin to gamble. They begin to cast lots and gamble for who was going to get what of Christ's clothing specifically for the seamless robe, and then divided the other items among themselves. And notice what we read there in verse 24, that this was a specific prophecy fulfilled from Psalm 22 and verse number 18, where it was prophesied in that Messianic Messianic Psalm that they would cast lots, they would gamble for the garments of the Messiah. So even these soldiers, from their perspective, they're thinking, "I'm going to gain something from this." Now they wouldn't have gone and sold it on eBay or one of those other, you know, websites. But maybe they could have turned around and sold it or kept it as a memento. Maybe it would have and made them maybe made them more wealthy or at least given them some credence. I was there for so and so's execution or whatever the case may have been. But in doing that, in their ignorance, in their selfishness, and their desire to gain something from that, they are fulfilling a prophecy. From all the way back in Psalm 22 and verse 18, I just am amazed again and humbled by the providence of God in so many ways, in so many specific prophetic fulfillments, even in the crucifixion of Jesus which once again gives testimony to the inspiration, to the authority of the Word of God. That this is not just a made up book of man's words and man's stories. This is the very words of God, inspired and authoritative, infallible, and fulfilled in specific prophecies such as Psalm 22 and verse 18. Now in Luke 23 and verse 47. Matthew 27, in verse 54, and Mark 15, in verse 39, we know that there was, among the soldiers, a centurion. So, among the perspective of the soldiers, those who were gambling for Christ's clothing, no doubt they were in ignorance and in an unsaved condition. They were looking for their own personal benefit and profit. They were going about this with no reverence, no respect, and, 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 and no humiliation, or, or I mean, no, no humility. No submission to Christ, but there was one. As we see throughout the crucifixion of Christ, throughout his trials, and as we see in our own lives, in our own world, so many people who are drawn to Christ, who get saved, from different backgrounds, different settings, different walks of life, and we are, as a church family, a testimony to the grace of God coming from lots of different backgrounds, different statuses in society, different wealth, different wherever the economic or the cultural background is. We know that God can save and will save all who will come to him in repentance and faith no matter what your background is, no matter what your cultural background is, no matter what your race may be, no matter what your economic status may be, God can and will save you if you will come to him in repentance and faith. And there's a centurion, Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 and verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what was done, He glorified God, saying, certainly, this was a righteous man. He said that right after Jesus spoke, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. We go over to Matthew 27 in verse 54. Matthew 27 in verse 54. And there we read the centurion. Now, when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. A centurion gets saved. A centurion turns from his sin and turns to Christ in saving faith. We see a centurion leaders, a leader of a band of a hundred. Roman soldiers, no doubt in his band of men, were those who had nailed Jesus to that cross, some of whom may have been there in the judgment hall, slapping him. No doubt had been railing on him and mocking him, and the centurion, in observing all of that, all that went on in the proceedings and the crucifixion of Jesus, the centurion was struck with the gravity of his sin, in the greatness of our God, of our Savior Jesus Christ. And he says, truly, this is the Son of God. And he gets saved. We've seen the perspectives of a Simon, a religious man who gets saved. We see the two thieves, one who continues in his rebellion and mocking, and one who turns from his sin and gets saved. And that day was in paradise with his Savior. We see the soldiers, some of whom continue in their gambling ways and their wicked ways and with no shame and in complete defiance and rejection of Christ, they continue to look for their own ways of making themselves meritorious in the eyes of others, gaining themselves wealth, but there was a centurion who trusts Christ as his Savior. We continue... And we look down in verses 28 and 29, among the duties of these soldiers was, in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. I thirst. We understand that there were seven sayings of Jesus. Uh, This one, I believe, was the fifth. So he was thirsty. The soldiers then, we are told, in verse 29, set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. Now, I don't know the exact chemical makeup of this vinegar, but when I think of vinegar, I I remember there are certain distinctive things in my memory growing up, and my mom would fix spinach, and she would get it out, I think it was out of a can, and it would just be this big green lump on my plate, and I, I, I just could not get myself to eat it. Now, I like leafy spinach in a salad, but this was just this green clump, and my mom and dad thought, oh, we know how to make them eat the spinach, we'll pour vinegar on it. And I am not joking. My recollection to this day of vinegar always has to do with a big clump of spinach on my plate. And I had to eat enough. I don't remember how many bites, but we had to eat something. Usually at my house, we had to clean our plates. But there were certain things where my mom and dad would be merciful to us, and we would, and we would only have to eat a certain portion of certain veg- vegetables. And spinach was one of them that we just had to kind of hopefully get it to go down with that vinegar. Slide it down or something. Well, whatever this vinegar that they mixed, that is described as vinegar, was dipped in a sponge and using a a reed, a hyssop reed, they put it up to Christ's lips to moisten them. This was commonly done actually to sustain life and to increase the torture and the pain. This is different from the wine mixed with gall described in Matthew 27 and verse 34 that Jesus refused because the wine mixed with gall would deaden the pain. Jesus refused what would have lessened the pain and he allowed for his lips to be moistened for him to take just a small part of what would increase the torture and the pain. That's incredible dying for our sin. And he increases his own pain and his own torture and increases the suffering for you and for me. Most of us, when we get sick, we just want to get as far removed from the pain and the agony and the difficulty we want to get beyond that as quickly as we can. But as the soldiers reached up with that reed of hyssop and that sponge with that vinegar, we read there, they put it upon a hyssop put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. In verse 30, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. So the prolonging of that torture, of that pain, of that suffering, was the purpose of that vinegar that the soldiers gave him. That once again reminds us of the suffering of our Lord for you and for me. That he was tortured, that he... Suffered intense, excruciating pain as the God-man. A pain that goes beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. And I know some of us have been through surgeries. We've been in some sort of accident or we've had some measure of pain. I remember having knee surgery 2003, 2000, I think it was 2003, the year Emily was born. And I remember the first rehab I went to, the first therapy. And I had my, I was laying down on my back and that therapist came and I felt, I thought that she was just yanking my knee. I, mean, I she probably barely moved it. I just wanted to punch her. <laughs> I mean, I was, it hurt so bad. I had hardly moved that knee other than some home therapy in weeks. And then she's just like yanking and, and I don't know what all to my knee that day. And, and it just, it hurt so bad. And Jesus willingly suffered and even allowed for an increase in that pain and that torture. For you and for me, it's it's overwhelming. Verse 34 the soldiers also pierced Jesus' side, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. This is important because victims of crucifixion would often hang for several days as part of the torture and the shame. So the religious leaders, they were concerned. They were concerned that bodies would still be hanging on the Sabbath day. Remember, Passover was to begin at 6 p.m. for the Sabbath day, and the Sabbath also being Saturday. And they asked the soldiers then to break the legs of the criminals hanging on the cross. The soldiers would break the legs of the thieves, as was common practice, because when the legs were broken, no longer could those who were hanging on the cross elevate themselves in their diaphragm to be able to take a breath. If they didn't die from the pain and all that went on with the crucifixion, they would die from asphyxiation because they would have to pull themselves up in order to get their diaphragm. They would have their arms hanging and they would pull up just enough to catch a breath. But when their legs were broken, they couldn't do that, and they would die from asphyxiation. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. The soldiers saw that he was already dead. So what did they do? They pierced his side with the sword in fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 34 in verse number 20. Out of the wound, blood came mixed with water, a biological, scientific reality indicating that he was dead. And that fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 12 in verse number 10. Two more prophecies fulfilled even in the acts of the soldiers as part of their custom, as part of what they would do. And as they pierced him through, we see fulfillment of Messianic prophecies from Psalm 34, 20 and Zechariah 12 in verse number 10. So we see these perspectives. We see Simon. We see the thieves. We see the soldiers and the centurion. And then we come... To the women. Verses 25 through 27. John 19 and verse 25. We work our way back up to verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Now let's identify for a minute these women. There is some debate as to whether there were three or there were four. I believe there were four. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, the mother of James and John, sons of Zebedee, sons of Thunder. That would have been Mary's sister. So you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. You have Mary, the mother of James and John. You have Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and then you have Mary Magdalene. I believe these are the women who were identified here. Now there were probably other women who were also observing. We know that there were later there would be women who would go down to the tomb. But we read here of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Can you imagine how hard it was for Mary to watch her son? tortured, to suffer like a common criminal. We read in Zechariah, or excuse me, not Zechariah, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 35, that Simeon, when they brought Jesus as an infant to Simeon, he said that a sword would pierce through her own heart. Remember, Mary had pondered had taken a lot of these things that she would sing as Jesus was growing up, as he was there in the temple as a 12-year-old, and astounding the scribes, the scholars, the religious leaders with his authoritative understanding of the word of God, and remember, Mary kept these things and pondered them in her heart. Now she's watching Jesus die on the cross, suffer unimaginable pain. A sword, in a sense, would pierce through her own soul, her own heart also, in a proverbial way, in an allegorical way. Imagine what it was like for Mary. Mary, I do believe, I don't care what the song says at Christmas, did she know? Yes. I think Mary knew. I think Mary knew and she understood that there was a time when Christ would die. She knew Christ as her Savior. She had come to Him in humility as His handmaid, as she refers to herself in her song of praise and thanksgiving. Humanly speaking, Mary realizes she understands there's an attachment as mom, and yet there is a distinction and a difference because she understands He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. I cannot imagine all the conflicting thoughts the conflicting thoughts and emotions that were going through mary there's a special bond that moms have with their children it's one of the reasons why abortion is such a horrible thing not only is it murder of an innocent life but it destroys a attachment that a mom has with her child that is an incredibly emotional toll that that, that takes on a mother. There, there, there needs to be compassion for a woman who has had her child aborted. There's incredible suffering that she is experiencing that, yes, can be overcome by the grace and the mercy of God, but is still there. Here is Mary who is watching her son, humanly speaking, as a mom with her child, watching him murdered unjustly. And what does our news media do in today's world when there is a child who is unjustly or even justly killed in some sort of criminal act or in some sort of uh, questionable activity? Oftentimes the news media will find the mom and put the microphone in front of the mom and ask the mom how she feels and, and there's some sort of expression of the suffering and the agony. Not that there was a microphone in front of Mary's mouth that day, but can you imagine the conflict in her soul, knowing that this was necessary, understanding that this is what he had come for, understanding that as she had gone through various times and stages in Jesus' life, even at the wedding at Cana of Galilee, what did Jesus say to Mary? He said to her respectfully, Woman, ma'am, Mine hour has not yet come. Already Jesus was distancing himself from his mother. Imagine, I know we're going through a stage of life now with two about ready to go to college. Some of you have been there, done that, and you're empty nesters, and you've, you've, you've been through all that. We're, we're, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm having a little bit of a hard time as a dad. My kids are growing up, and I'm not getting old. They're just growing up. But, you know, there's, there's all that emotion, all that consternation. And Mary is now even probably beginning to wonder, as her firstborn son dies, who's going to take care of her, as a firstborn son is obligated to do? And Jesus, in his compassion, in his love, what does he say? He says to the Apostle John, who will not identify himself in his humility, he just simply says, the disciple standing by, whom he loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved, He saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And he saith to the disciple, Behold thy mother. In his compassion, Jesus makes sure that his mother is taken care of. Now can I again go on a little bit of a caveat here? Mary is not the mother of God. This was not some Roman Catholic statement by Jesus venerating Mary. Because... The Catholic system venerates Mary into a place of almost like deity, of worship. And they use this passage and they make this statement that Jesus uses here, that Jesus makes. And they try to identify it and read into it as Jesus venerating Mary, raising her to some higher class of being as the mother of God. And worthy of our worship as the avenue by which we get to Jesus. Because we need the tender compassion of Mary to bring us to her suffering son, Jesus. And the tender, compassionate mother of God, Mary, is needed for us to be able to have a relationship with Jesus. No, that's not at all what Jesus is saying here. He is compassionately and respectfully making sure Mary is taken care of in his obligation culturally as the firstborn son. But he is in no way, shape, or form venerating her, raising her up to a place of worship or godlike status. In no way, shape, or form is this passage saying that the way to Jesus is through Mary. That is not at all taught in scripture. Clearly not in this passage. It was simply Jesus making sure Mary was taken care of. And John would be the one who would help take care of her. We're out of time this morning. We've only been able to look at four or five perspectives. Lord willing, we'll come back next week and we'll look at a few more. But we've seen Simon, a, a religious man who ends up as an casual observer carrying the cross of Jesus, whose son Rufus is then identified as a member of the Roman church. The church at Rome, I should say. That Paul identifies in Romans 16. A religious man who gets saved. His perspective of the cross causes him to turn from his religion and all his works and turn to Christ in saving faith, and then he passes that faith down as his son Rufus also trust Christ, becomes active and faithful in church there at Rome. The two thieves, one who continued in blasphemy and went to a Christless hell, but another thief who said, today, will you remember me in paradise? Get saved, gloriously saved there as a criminal on the cross next to Jesus. We see the soldiers, some of whom continue in their gambling ways, and their selfish ways, and their wicked ways, caring little about who Jesus is, as he even cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And immediately, in a sense, there's an answer to that prayer already in the centurion. Who as a Roman soldier, no doubt a pagan, probably a polytheist, probably superstitious like Pilate, And he says, truly, this is the Son of God. He gets saved. And then we see the women. We've just touched on on the first one, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And his compassion, Christ's compassion for Mary, who had to come to Christ as her Savior, as she no doubt did, recognizing even as the mother of Jesus' humanity, as the mother of Jesus, his humanity, that she too had to come to Christ spiritually. She had to come as his handmaiden, as a humble servant, and trust him as her savior. And even through all the emotions that she was going through that day, we see that Jesus made sure she is taken care of, that John's going to help take care of her. We'll come, Lord willing, next week to some more perspectives. But what today, as we close is our perspective of the cross. Have you come to him as your savior, confessing your sins, putting your faith and trust in him? As a believer, maybe you are in some place of consternation in your life, of turmoil in your life, and you need to get right with God, and you need to come to Christ and make things right with him. Whatever it is that you are going through, remember, Christ cares For an unsaved person, he cares for your soul. As a saved person, he cares that you become more like him, that you become Christ-like. He wants us to live faithful, obedient lives for him. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you will help us to take these truths, to take these perspectives, and Lord, to, in a sense, tighten up our own view, our own image, to clear up, Lord, our view of you as our Savior and our Lord. That, Lord, if there's someone here as a believer who's not right with you, may they get that matter taken care of today as an unsaved person, Lord. May they turn from their sin like the thief, like the centurion, like even Simon, a religious man, and turn to you in saving faith. We pray you'll do your work in our hearts and lives as we sing this closing hymn. In Jesus' name we pray.